So, uh, y'all want to listen to an interview with a uh, certified New York Times journalist? This is the call and response portion of the broadcast. Hopefully the answer is obviously yes, uh, but if not, too bad, because that's what you're getting, no matter what. Last time we had the best columnist left in Spokane goddamn Washington, Sean Vestal. That was amazing. This week, we have one of the world's foremost, foremost, and I don't say this lightly, foremost journalistic experts on, well, why don't I just quote the New York Times here? Extremist ideologies, the anti-government movement, and fringe cultures. Things that are very in vogue right now. Well, let's be honest, in the West, for the majority of all of our lives, maybe there will be a day when these views fall out of vogue among a certain population, shall we say. But as it stands, and for the foreseeable future, and also the rememberable past, extremist ideologies. So hot right now. That, my friends, was an increasingly dated movie reference that is still much, much younger than the anti-government movement. But here's the awesome thing about our guest. You ready for it? So not only is this person well-versed enough to give the sort of New York Times magazine, so the magazine, which is like a, you know, another level above the basic-ass New York Times paper, give the definitive treatment to the Boogaloo movement, which is the latest and one of the weirdest instantiations of this anti-government sentiment. But she's based in Portland, and she lived a good chunk of her life in Spokane, frickin' Washington. So, you know, normally if you want to get the uh, the high level, the medium level, the regional level, and then the local level, you got to go schlepping around to like five or six different publications like a schmuck, like a sucker. But right here on Range, this episode only, we've got all of that. The whole, the national level, the regional level, the local significance, all in one. Hooey! Who is this absolute unicorn of a journalist? Well, it's Leah Satilli. So hot right now. Leah that was more Arnold Schwarzenegger than Will Ferrell. Going to move right along. I said last week that we were going to conclude the interview with Mr. Vestal. I lied. This awesome feature dropped on all of our laps right as I was finishing the last episode up. It actually provides some really good background for the Craig Meidel story that I wrote last week or like two weeks ago. I can't remember. All the groups that Chief Meidel refused to denounce as white supremacists get a pretty good explication in this piece by Leah. Leah was nice enough to make time in her schedule, and it's really timely. So we're putting it in front. But also, bonus, next time there's going to be a little extra Leah Satilli content talking about journalism and what it's like to be a freelancer in the West to go along with that previously promised content from Sean Vestal about various topics of journalistic interest. For example, how the modern newsroom is very white, like the historic newsroom. And how that shit really shouldn't fly in 2020. But how teeny little bit of hope on the horizon. Younger generations of reporters, such as they are, are not content to put up with that bullshit the way that other generations did. So yeah, y'all look forward to a little journalistic double feature. Next time, I already have the episode art picked out. It's going to be a treat. For now, though, gird your loins for a riveting interview with an absolute grand dame and somehow also a wunderkind of contemporary journalism on a topic that is as endlessly interesting as it is relentlessly terrifying. Lisa Tilly and the Boogaloo Movement, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 13, The Big Igloo.
have to do on my end? Do I have to do anything? No, I think you're good. And I'm actually, okay. I just started recording to make sure I'm getting levels from you on here that I can see. I can see my own levels. I've got my other, my backup recording okay. going. Let me but, start my recorder. Cool. cool. I hope this has a charged battery. I think it does. I'll keep an <laughs> eye on it if it doesn't. <laughs> and I'm going to have to get up in a second, turn off my air conditioner. I have a very, I'm up in my attic and I have a very oh. complicated HVAC situation going on where it'll be like 200 degrees in here if I oh, don't. Oh, God. Yeah. That sucks. Well, I just stopped <sighs> Joe's lunch in the microwave so you don't pick up that sound <laughs> either. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Home okay. recording. It's awesome, man. It's I love it. And you, you actually sound really good too. So good. I'm, cool. I'm happy. All right. Leah Satilli, thank you so much for coming on range. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. The first thing I wanted to say, I saw that Willamette Week wrote a story about the story you wrote in the New York Times magazine. And that's gotta <laughs> that's gotta feel like that. The it's like the biggest when you get a sort not really competing paper, but when you get another paper to write a story about the story they didn't break, that's got to feel pretty good, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just sort of saw it. I was like, oh, they must have had like they must have needed like some content to fill for the day. I'm fine with being that. That's cool. I'm totally oh, good with awesome. It. So good. <laughs> so dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to talk about the Boogaloo Boys, but. It also, it kind of seems like you can't really talk about any of those movements in a vacuum because they're also weirdly, complicatedly interconnected. Right. So I was kind of hoping to go through this step by step. Okay. And sort of tease some of these things out. Like maybe we start with the Boogaloo Boys, then zoom out to the larger weirdness. I don't know. And then maybe zoom back in, whatever. Does that? Yeah. yeah. Sounds great. Let's do it. So like, like many of the worst things in the world, the Boogaloo movement, it starts on 4chan. Is that right? And then spreads... Yeah, that was kind of my understanding of it. You know, and I'll be sort of totally honest here. There are two things in extremism that I have long told myself I would not write about. One of them was QAnon and the other was the Boogaloo. And within (laughs) the first two paragraphs of this story, I think that I talked about both. And I think that that is just an indicator of how really impossible it is to see in advance of what is going to catch on and become really popular with people. So, um, so yeah, you're right. Like the Boogaloo, as far as I can tell, started on 4chan. You know, there is this um, dance movement, this like black dance movement that was happening in like the 70s and 80s in the Oakland area of people who called themselves Boogaloo and they were dancers and it was just like super positive style of like street dance. So, um, so it's important, I think, to say that like this this name has really been co-opted, but that's, you know, how the internet works. But yeah, so there were these posts on 4chan and um, really the Boogaloo kind of came into my brain last fall when the Anti-Defamation League wrote this kind of profile about the group and just said, you know, here's what it is. And it's, it's this sort of group of people, but it's also this event. So like the, the, the group in itself are people who, um, want to see some sort of cataclysm happen in the future that leads to the downfall of America or the Second Civil War. You know, this takes a whole number of different forms, but the Boogaloo itself is also that event, that, you know, moment of collapse, whether that's on a federal level or a state level. I mean, it, it's, it's, 
it's super hard to nail down, which was kind of what I tried to do with this story. Yeah. So it's a, if in like um, fringy or religious ideology to be like, if you're a rapturist, it means you, you believe in the rapture or you, you want to see it happen, but it also refers kind of to the event itself or something. Mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You're totally getting that. Right. And I think that, you know, it really started kind of as a meme, like um, uh, based off of this breakdancing movie. And, and, and what's funny yeah. is like, it was called break into electric boogaloo is the name of this 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 breakdancing movie and people like in the i want to say like early aughts started like adding electric boogaloo to like the back half of their album name so i feel like there's like a minus the bear album that's like blah 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 (laughs) electric boogaloo like it became this like sort of joke and And it's kind of like a joke for how bad sequels can be right it's like it's almost like irony this is this album that's also it's worse than all of our other albums right 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 right. so it's like start it started as exactly that and then you know the way the internet works especially when things are on 4chan it's like it gets into the minds and hearts of people who have really crazy ideas and really nefarious intentions and maybe white supremacist ideas and stuff so it was late last year that all of a sudden extremism researchers and experts started seeing like, hey, this boogaloo thing is more than a meme. It looks to be some kind of movement that's kind of catalyzing itself and really emerged in the wild in early 2019 when there was that big gun rally in Virginia. That's yeah. when you really saw like a lot of people in these Hawaiian shirts and plate carriers with their guns showing up. So it kind of seemed like a gun rights thing yeah. for a while. And then, you know, obviously COVID happened and that's when things changed. Well, and this is already kind of getting a little bit in the weeds, but w- I think in the the Bellingcat article that I, mm-hmm. they, they noted that like the room that it came out of wasn't the slash pole, which is where a lot of the really racist shit comes out of. It was like the gun. It was like the gun forum that the Boogaloo seems to have come out of, which is slightly different. Yeah. and And, and I think that that's, one thing where I was like looking for what the commonalities are here, because it's like you you talk to, you know, five different Boogaloo boys, you're going to get five different definitions of what the Boogaloo is. But it's like this, there really seems to be no Boogaloo without guns. Like it's it's a gun thing. It is dependent on guns. And, yeah. and, and it's, you know, it's totally a two-way thing. Totally. Basically anything that sort of, maybe not everything, but a lot of things that originate on 4chan seem to have like this healthy dose of internet irony that makes them tough to pin down. Mm. And especially compared with historic hate groups like the Aryan Nation, but then like militia groups like the Three Percenters and the Lightfoots, like who take themselves incredibly seriously. The Boogaloo Boys, they wear tactical gear, like you were saying, like plate carriers and Hawaiian shirts. They're like goofy mm-hmm. and it's based on a dumb name. Like, what do you think it means and what role does irony play in the way that they present themselves? Is it just like internet shit posting or are they trying to like rope a dope and look goofy until they literally trigger a civil war? I think that's a great question. I think I think it's hard to say because, um, you know, some of the response that I've gotten to the story that I wrote last week is, you know, oh my God, it's just a joke. Like, oh yeah. But, but the thing is, it's like, it's a joke until what? Until people start dying. Well, they have, you know, people have started yeah. committing violence in the name of the Boogaloo. Um, you know, there's tons of examples of it happening in the last three to four months. So, you know, I think I don't really buy it that it's a joke anymore. Plus, yeah. one of the things that I was seeing really early on is that, you know, this is this anti-racist movement. We're anti-racist, we're anti-racist. Well, you have all of these incidents where these Boogaloo guys are showing up and trying to use 
black protesters as a tool for their own means, which to right. me is absolutely the most racist thing you can do. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think that, um, I think there's for every time someone says it's a joke, there are lots of examples of people who don't take it seriously. And I think this is part of the problem of any movement left or right that is, you know, quote unquote, leaderless resistance is you don't have a central command post to say, we condemn the actions of Stephen Carrillo in Oakland, who killed a yeah. federal protective services officer and a police officer. You know, right. we condemn people bringing Molotov cocktails to protests like they did in Las Vegas. You don't have that happening. So so I think until that happens, it's a little hard to say, well, it's just a joke because it's beyond yeah. that now. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole comparing this to like Occupy, but thinking, well, I think what you're talking about is like the, on the left, something like Occupy that was like a bunch of people getting together with a bunch of different ideological complaints or or focuses and like all sort of convening on on that park. And it, it spawned a movement. And the criticism of that movement was that, well, you guys don't have any actual demands. It's just a bunch of, you know, anarchists and hippies who like, you know, can't agree on anything. The the thing that strikes me is that's a really good way to draw in a lot of different groups. And it strikes me that the, the fluidity of the Boogaloo ideology almost seems tailor-made to draw people into it or at least get people like comfortable with it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like I saw in Spokane photos of a big Boogaloo boy wearing a Proud Boys vest mm-hmm. and a different guy wearing a three percenters cap. Mm-hmm. And that's those Proud Boys and three percenters don't usually get along at least in this area so mm, interesting. Like, what's going on with that yeah i mean and i think it's interesting i mean first about the the comparison to occupy i mean i haven't reported a ton on that so i can't speak super authoritatively about it but i think that the big difference that you'll always see between these sort of leaderless leftist movements is violence and no violence um yeah. you know I, I don't know of anybody who killed in the name of occupy yeah. but on these right movements like these far right movements you can point time and time again over the decades of of moments where people took something that maybe was just a theory or a leaderless movement or a joke and then all of a sudden people are dying so there, there's there's always that distinction i mean as far as in spokane you seeing people with proud boy vests on and hawaiian shirts or you know three percenter logos and stuff like that i've seen that too really all around the west and i think that, um, you know, including Matt Marshall of the Washington Three Percenters, very famously yeah. sort of um, having this Hawaiian shirt on and a three-cornered a three hat. like <laughs> Yeah, he, that's a, he, like an iconic image. It is at this point. And I think that what that shows is this adherence around this idea of the catalyzing event that, um, you know, in a way, like, militias have long talked about preparing for some sort of civil war. It's it's like mm. at the center of their whole ideology is always prepping up for this coming disaster. But in a way, there's a bit of optimism there that that when said disaster happens in, in, in the future, you know, we the militias will rise up and rebuild society in our image. With the Boogaloo, it's different because it's saying we perhaps want to be the bringers of that event. Uh, so instead yeah. of defending against it, you have this sort of saying, we'll be the guys to throw the Molotovs. We'll be the ones to to cause the chaos. So, so I think that's different. But I think, you know, when you do see this sort of 
cross-pollination of these groups. I think that within three percenter groups, within Proud Boys, you have people who want to take action. And, you know, in the story, very deeply, many thousand words into the story, there's talk um, amongst the Las Vegas Boogaloo group about how they really viewed militias as like old guys. Yeah. And they're often called like the meet, eat and retreat crowd. Like they get together, <laughs> they have a barbecue, they talk about the coming civil war, but then they go home for bed. And, and, but within those groups, you've got people who really want to take action, who really want, are, you know, showing up at Bundy Ranch in 2014 because they actually want to kill cops. So I think that, that that's, the, that's where you've got the drawing of interest from some of these other groups is, hey, okay, maybe this will be the thing that we can, we can participate in to spark some shit. Yeah. Let's let's go back just briefly to talk about the the fluidity of racism mm. uh, or and and anti-racism in the Boogaloo movement. Can you talk a little bit about people expressing like actively anti-racist sentiments within the Boogaloo to others wanting to specifically start a race war or trigger it in that way? Mm. Like it seems like the the civil war as a catalyzing event for some people is a symbol of just generally like we need a change, we need a revolution. I'm, I hope I'm not being overly generous to those people, but then other people are like, yeah, uh, the reason the civil war was cool was because it was about slavery and we don't like those people you know what i mean so yeah. um are, are people really trying to create a rainbow coalition here some of them or is it just alt-right style posturing boy that's a great question i i mean it's hard to say because like in all the reporting i did i was just constantly scratching my head i would find these pages uh, on facebook that were you know all these you know boogaloo memes and stuff like that and they would talk about a lot of anti-government stuff but they would also be saying like hey, we need to be really proactive about climate change. Hey, we need to be out in the streets supporting these, these uh, Black Lives Matter protesters and being their allies and things like that. But then under the same banner of the Boogaloo, I was finding some of the like most horrendous neo-Nazi stuff and yeah. big, big eco-fascist stuff like where people are you know, basically parading out the blood and soil argument that, you know, you heard people chanting at Charlottesville, um, yeah, but, but equating absolutely. environmentalism with, with this sort of like racial purity thing. So I don't know, it's really hard to say. I, I think that, again, it's that, it's that leaderless problem is that you, you kind of have to take each boogaloo group um, on a case by case basis. I mean, here in Portland where I live, there were um, some boogaloo boys that showed up, to the Black Lives Matter protests and were promptly told to leave. Um, uh, they were yeah. they were told by protesters, "You're not you're not a part of our group. We don't want anything to do with you." And I think that that you know, Boogaloo boys can show up and say, "Hey, we're here to protect you. We're here to um, protect your rights." But at the end of the day, protesters, I think, are the ones that get to say whether or not they want that. You know. Yeah. Um, and it's really taking kind of these different shapes all over the country in Coeur d'Alene. You know, you had people showing up and saying, hey, we're here to protect the rights of Black Lives Matter protesters. But then at the same time, really seeming to intimidate people oh, um, out of town and that kind of thing. I mean, that happens all over the country. So it's it's hard to say that they that they are anti-racist. I mean, I've interviewed quite a few Boogaloo guys that say, you know, they're anti-racist. And I 100% believe that that's true. Um, yeah. but it's just, it's, it's just too fluid right now. Yeah. Well, and maybe it'll always be too fluid. I'm not trying to get you to editorialize too much here, but like, I think a lot about like, are we, when we're trying to spend so much time figuring out how these 
people feel? Are we are we just sort of playing on their battlefield or do we need to just like sort of find our own battlefield? Mm. This is something I think that comes up a lot in the reporting I've done for the last few years is like, where are what are the moments that it's important for a reporter to look at this stuff and understand it on an ideological level? And where does it um, spread? propaganda so like that was part of part of my initial resistance to wanting to write about the boogaloo is that it just seemed like this i don't know i just i just didn't think it seemed important enough to write about but obviously you know after virginia after covid restrictions and all of a sudden you see people from from militia groups donning these hawaiian shirts and then people start dying then it's like, okay, we need to take this a little bit more seriously. And maybe that's a flaw of people like me that I didn't jump on it sooner. Um, But I think that it really took me understanding like that Las Vegas case to get a sense of like, oh, these groups of militias are 1000% not scary to the Boogaloo. Like their whole idea for some people, for the ones who want to commit violence, is to be scarier than militias, which is just like blows my mind. Yeah. Just tangential or going back to what you mentioned about Coeur d'Alene, it was like, that was, that's an example where it, it seemed very clear cut, like more like proud boy style. Like we're here to protect the protesters while actively intimidating them. When like one, I saw a post, this is a reporter at the Coeur d'Alene press mm. overheard somebody saying a moment a rock gets thrown I'm going to put a bullet in there between their eyes. So it was clearly like, (laughs) that's awful. Look like living in Spokane for as long as I did, but also like understanding how much of this stuff is just in the Northwest has been so instrumental in my interest in writing about extremism for as long as I have. But, but what happened in Coeur d'Alene was so notable to me in that there was just this rampant normalization of that sentiment that, that there were people showing up and standing outside of, Hogan's hamburgers and the toy <laughs> yeah. store with AR-15s. It was a chilling moment for me because, you know, this idea of violence solving things, like that instruments of violence solve things. I mean, I, I, it's just, I can't think of a time that that's worked. And so, so to see Americans in their own towns tearing themselves apart and getting behind these paramilitary vigilante groups and saying they're going to protect them from these mythical leftist brick throwers is just crazy to me. It's just out of control. And there were just so many examples in the Northwest. Of course, there were so many examples all over the country, but I, you know, I was just really looking at what was going on out here. Well, one of the things that I think is fascinating that you could probably write a book about Coeur d'Alene, North Idaho, this area, but specifically Coeur d'Alene's role in this, it's more than just the historic Aryan Nation stuff. It's like my friend Ryan, who's a lifelong Coeur d'Alene resident, was texting me back and forth before any of the any of the AR-15 BLM stuff, saying because of the lack of restrictions in Idaho, Coeur d'Alene's a resort town. It always in the summer has a bunch of people from all over the country, you know, and, and celebrities like John Elway used to own a house out there. Mm-hmm. He was like, this year I'm seeing more out-of-town plates and not just Washington state plates. So not just people coming over from Spokane for the weekend. I'm seeing more out-of-state plates than I've ever seen in my entire life. Wow. Then then all of a sudden this thing kicks up. So it strikes me that there's this unique moment where maybe it's because of the pandemic or maybe I don't know what the, if there's any causality there, but it's like everybody was looking at Coeur d'Alene. I'm sure you saw on Facebook that, that video that just got shared around 
of streets full of people with AR-15s that was like posted by some random guy in like Arkansas or Mississippi, but Mm -hmm. that also had like a million views. And it's like, it was wild. I mean, I couldn't help but see those images and like think immediately about the articles that I've pulled up and the videos that I've seen of the Aryan Nations parades that were happening on the very same streets in Coeur d'Alene in the nineties. And like, it was tough because like, you know, I mean, you and I both know like Spokane, the Inland Northwest, it gets a bad rap. Like people really like to generalize about people's racism and things like that. But it broke my heart to see what was going on in Coeur d'Alene this spring because that town fought off racism firsthand. Yeah. They were the ones that got the Aryan nations out of there and said, we don't want you here. You're, you, there's no home for racism here. And what what they're missing now is that they're they're not seeing through the the cosplaying, I think, that's happening a bit with the, some of these militia groups. But they're also not like taking the next logical step of thinking to say, wait a second, what kind of person shows up in the streets of a town <laughs> with a gun and is like going to, you know, stand outside of fig pickle? <laughs> think hard about that like is that is that really is that really the kind of people you want to be are you understanding some of the conspiracy theories that inform these militia groups in the first place you know the three percenters operate from a belief that three percent of the american population fought off the british that's not true yeah that didn't happen so you know it was much easier for people when there were crosses burning on hills in north idaho and there were people throwing up you know nazi salutes in the streets of Coeur d'Alene. it was very easy to recognize that as racist yeah right now i think this is the issue that we've gotten into with america is that there's a lot of people who don't want to believe that racism is much more subtle than that that in a way it was very it was just so easy to see like richard butler and all these people were nazis well it's different now and this is why racism persists in america is that that they're <laughs> they're not seeing at the heart of some of these guys that showed up in sandpoint and cordelaine and missoula is a real um subscribing to this mythical conspiracy theory based truth well and also not unlike that former time like you were mentioning about the the aryan nations in the 90s the people that were at least successful in toppling the aryan nation were not law enforcement it was local people suing the organization into oblivion similarly i'm finding that it's not and you mentioned you kind of glanced at this in the story you wrote and and you've talked about it in other places like it's it's wild to me wild that this all this stuff can be happening in our communities i'm thinking about this sheriff of spokane county ozzy knezovich i'm thinking about craig meidel the police chief of spokane saying we don't know who these people are exactly maybe it's antifa right yeah yeah and so there's like there are pe- there's this group of people the boogaloo boys who the place they diverge from the, the the traditional militias are like recruiting from law enforcement. They're recruiting from ex-military actively. There's actually kind of a chummy relationship between a lot of the more sort of traditional militias. It seems weird to even say that, but mm. traditional militias. And then, but then, so then the Boogaloo Boys come along and are like, we want to kill cops. We want to, we want to start a war. It seems like law enforcement is not prepared to be like, oh, these guys are a threat to us. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, it, I, I agree with you. And I also think it's just frankly bizarre to see law enforcement say oh it's and it's antifa that we're, it's that we're defending against and yet people are showing up in a city 
uh, like Spokane, you know, roaming the streets, patrolling. And what I take away with that is that if they see someone they perceive as Antifa, then they are either going to zip tie that person and detain them like they did in Missoula, Montana, or perhaps they're going to shoot them. And that means that you have law enforcement saying that they're not only encouraging potential you know, extrajudicial punishment, that that the the whole legal process where someone is arrested and then they see charges and they're arraigned and then they have a trial or whatever, that that whole part of things seems to be deprioritized on the part of law enforcement, which is very strange to me. Just had to jump in real quick. I'm getting chills in the back of my neck. We recorded this conversation the day of the shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The concerns so many of us had in Spokane during those protests when the militiamen were on the streets were just borne out in the most brutal, dehumanizing, destructive, murderous ways at the hands of a a literal child. One of the things that's so deeply problematic about the way these movements grow up online is how close that puts them to children who obviously spend a metric shit ton of time online. And at least for me as a kid, the internet is where I went to like learn about the world outside of Chatteroy, Washington, and how open I was to everything and just how susceptible I would have been or might have been to an ideology like that. I can't stop thinking about it. All right, back to the interview. Okay, so wow, that's a lot already. Um, <laughs> just want to shake it out a little bit, just like I'm just gonna get uh, up and stretch. I'm, I'm very dogs. stressed out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we both have small dogs. We should just like go. go. go although, dog. although pugs have a level of anxiety that's really, you know, they they have like kind of an ambient anxiety level. It doesn't really help. That's uh, why they're so special. <laughs> D anxiety. So this happened so fast. And we've already talked a little bit about how long it's been marinating, at least. You know, it started it started coming to the fore last year. You know, the, you said the ADL started writing about it. I started seeing it late last year just as a, you know, a, a random guy who spends too much time online. And then one of the things that was just like so, it struck me that so, how quickly it mobilized. That like from that, whatever, whenever the fringes of that happened, whenever it was just like loose talk on the internet or motivated talk on the internet, all of a sudden there in Spokane, marching with reopen protesters from the courthouse to City Hall on May 1st. It's it's wild to me how quickly that happened. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually, uh, in an early draft of the story, like I wanted to tease out that exact march because I thought it was just really notable and telling. This is the march that was being led by Matt Shea, right? Yeah. So, you know, you have somebody that has these clear ties to you know, um, well, I mean, obviously you've got the 51st state movement, you've got his many, many incidents of racism and, you know, alleged domestic terrorist activity. Um, and holy war, uh, yeah, going after among other, yeah, I mean, it's just such a laundry list at this point, but, but then you've got these guys and what was so heartbreaking to me was the way that, you know, you have these boogaloo guys acting like security for other people who are simply just filming the protest or protesting it in any way. You have this like serious intimidation happening by those people. And then they went and knocked down all those crosses at City Hall. Yep. And I have a cat joining me. Um, hang on. <laughs> Can I go throw her in another room? Sorry. I thought yeah, please do. No, go for it. Hang on. We're going to cue the uh, girl from Ipanema music that everybody's gotten so used to. <laughs> that is not a sound effect. That is the actual cat in real time. It's the loudest cat. 
on the planet. Well, and right before, so I'm up in the attic. The, uh, my cat is with me. Um, <laughs> and when I closed the door to sort of like seal off my little makeshift studio, I came back up the stairs and he was looking at me like, oh, I know what that sound, that sound means I'm locked in. <laughs> so at some point I might have to go get, uh, go let him out as okay. well. But we'll see. Um, so yeah, you had these, you know, boogaloo slash proud boy hybrids in Spokane, just, just symbolically knocking down all these crosses for people who've died of COVID. And it was just such a chilling scene to me. And it was so, it was just so callous, like yeah, that this pain that is happening in such a real way in Spokane is just being like, it's just one more example of this like alternate reality that has emerged in the last four years where people just choose like we don't care about covid we don't acknowledge that it's real you know we can follow matt shea it's just it, it was just wild and and sad to see yeah absolutely or that the one boogaloo boy that i'm actually probably going to use for the uh, episode art and it was it was a screen cap taken from a reporter of color who i think Kremer KHQ, I don't know exactly, but she posted this live video where this guy walks past her, just just goofy. And this is where the, the grotesqueness is like sort of played up. It was like a dude in a shirt wearing what looked like like Brian Bosworth style, like Oakley blades, mm-hmm. proud boy uh, plate carrier, boogaloo shirt, and he just made the OK sign like right to her face as mm-hmm. she's filming. Uh, that guy was apparently from out of town. Joey Gibson has been spending more time time up here as well, and he told uh, Daniel Walters of the Inlander a couple, our, our both of our former colleague, uh, a couple weeks ago that he's in Spokane because Portland doesn't want him there anymore. So, have you got any sense that people are migrating in general or specifically to Spokane to be like, okay, cool, if this isn't gonna we might be we might focus our recruitment efforts or whatever or our agitation efforts in in a place that's at least perceived to be more um, more amenable to it. I mean, maybe I I think that it's hard to take much of what Joey Gibson says with much of a grain of seriousness. So, uh, yeah. story behind the story, like this draft, the initial drafts of the story that I wrote for the New York Times was much much longer and my initial interest in in the story was actually trying to see how these reopening rallies were being used as recruiting tools by extremists and so uh. i had a whole section of the story of where i talked to three different business owners who were all approached by joey gibson and told hey if you reopen your business i'll throw you a rally we'll start a gofundme and um, we'll raise money for you. And, you know, it all got cut from the story, which is fine. But what was notable about that was the way, you know, he was sort of offering this package, like, hey, if you uh, let me come and give a speech about what I believe in front of your business, like it'll benefit you in the end. And you had really kind of regular people saying like, well, I'm broke and I really need to reopen. And if you're going to support me, it seems like you have a big following. Okay. So I think that's probably part of what's going on there is that, you know, Joey Gibson, I feel like was at a rally last weekend here in Portland. So he certainly is not going to stop doing what he's doing. But but I think he probably is seeing, geez, you know, um, there are coalitions that we can be building. And it looks like he's cozying up at rallies next to Matt Shea and to people from Marble Community Fellowship and stuff. So um, I think that 
at on the far right, like you do have a lot of different groups, but they're intersecting spheres. Like they're not, it's not like there's going to be a rumble between, you know, the proud boys and the three percenters and like, you know, a street fight. It's like, yeah, people oftentimes like to cast the far right as like a bunch of dummies. And, and that's the thing is like, they're super good with branding and they're completely conscious of the fact like, okay, we can't burn a cross anymore. We can't, you know, have an Aryan nation style parade, but we can recruit using these more subtle techniques. And so, um, so I think that's a lot of what's going on is that you have Joey looking to get beside people like Matt Shea and potentially get people to new people to grift off. Totally. If nothing else, I think the right has been much, much better at building and maintaining coalitions than the left. Like it's just, you know, they're constant. It's like constantly circular firing squad. It seems right. like with different, like minute, you know, differences in, in, in opinion and ideology, but the, the recruiting thing is really interesting. I'm glad we, you mentioned that because my next two questions were actually kind of trying to dig into those rallies a little bit. So maybe we, this can be like what was on the cutting room floor of your story. Cause it struck me so again, you started at the We Are Washington rally in Olympia, and it felt like deja vu for this this May 1st Spokane rally. It was like ostensibly about the pandemic shutting down, businesses getting screwed, business owners getting screwed. They kind of tried to make it about workers, but it was really clearly about business owners, limiting personal freedom. But the crowd there in Olympia, just like the crowd in Spokane, was like this wild gumbo of right-wing ideology mm-hmm. so you you had the Inslee is the real virus signs you had the kim jong Inslee signs but then you also like we've talked about already open carry enthusiasts three percent are malicious proud boys a lot of QAnon shit just oh my god i'm i'm so worried about how many of our mothers and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers are like crypto QAnon truthers uh, based on all this stuff that's been happening. It's scaring the hell out of me. And then, and then the Boogaloo boys. And it struck me, I don't know if this is too far, but I got like this picture of like, it's like a Comic-Con for the right wing where it's like everybody's set up their little booth and they're like trying to sort of connect their ideology to this other thing or find it's like a, maybe a form of entryism. So maybe you can, can you talk about these events as like a form of marketing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that um, I may have just been at that rally and just been very confused had I not <laughs> been the speaker that I highlight in this, in the story. So, um, you know, that was really the first time I had left my house in months to, yeah. you know, because of COVID because, you know, I, don't want to spread this virus and and you know it's been pretty serious at times in portland so so i went up to that rally and i was like okay this it looks like a lot of patriot rallies i've been to before but there was this giant queue in the center and i was like oh okay wasn't really expecting that and the speaker is really kind of the q, q meaning q and on yeah there's this giant you, you know, with the where we go one, we go all. And I'm yeah. like, okay, and there's speakers and they're kind of like hinting at that. But there's a lot of stuff about religion happening. You know, a lot of people saying their churches are shut down. They can't go to church. Very, um, very religious crowd saying, you know, we, it is so important for us to be able to gather as, as, you know, religiously minded people, no matter the denomination. And this feels like an infringement of our of our freedom of religion. So, okay, right. I'm tracking, I'm tracking. But then I hear Kelly Stewart get on stage and, and Kelly has been someone that has been, you know, just this really consistent presence through the trials of the Bundys in, in Oregon and then in Nevada and um, really kind of 
always just like outside of jails and, and just this very prominent fixture um, who in the last year or so has gotten really intense about cops and calling them blue ISIS and pushing this line that I think a lot of people lose with like the Patriot circles. A lot of people always assume like the Bundys are pro cop. And so like, I'm just always really confused by that because they've always been pretty, <laughs> pretty anti-police. Well, pretty anti-cop. Yeah. Like, the first, like that first cattle standoff mm-hmm. on the freeway, right? There, there were people on an overpass with sniper rifles trained on federal law enforcement. Am yeah. I remembering that wrong? Yeah, no, you're remembering that right. And one of those people was Eric Parker of the real Idaho three percenters that just saw yeah. their Facebook page get shut down right. last week. So, so, you know, Kelly's there and, and she's, you know, kind of telling her story. And it was so interesting to me because I've sat in this room dozens and dozens of times with this woman, but to hear her say, you know, I was just a mom teaching Sunday school. And then a man was shot and killed by the police during the 2016 standoff at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. You know, she saw that was when her, her um, view of reality departed from the state's view of reality. Whereas um, in, and I'm talking about the shooting death of Robert Lavoie Finicum, um, where, you know, he uh, drove at high speed away from a traffic stop and then jumped out of his car yelling, shoot me, shoot me, reaching into his jacket for a supposedly loaded gun. A lot of people in that movement see that incident as a person who was murdered. They call it a planned hit or an assassination. And Kelly is one of those people. So when she saw that, this mother and Sunday school teacher, when she saw that happen, all of a sudden she felt called to action to defend people. It's like somebody that seemed familiar enough to her was shot and killed by law enforcement, you know, looking, turning a blind eye to the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of black people who've been shot and killed by police for, for years, somebody that she was familiar with was killed. And so that began her journey. And so at the end of this speech that that she gave at the We Are Washington rally, she said, I have homework for you. I want you to go home. I want you to Google all of these names. And she talked about Finnegan. She talked about Gordon Call, who in the early 80s mm-hmm. murdered several police officers. She let she rattled off a list of militiamen and and um, you know, people who had been in these really high profile incidents. She also talked about Eric Garner. She talked about um, Leonard Peltier. Like she, she talked about a lot of different people. And I think what was so interesting about that speech was her feeding this crowd of religious people, of mothers who were all of a sudden having to work and educate their kids at the same time. She was saying, go home and read these stories of people who've killed police officers. Go home and read these stories of militiamen who, you know, wanted to uh, overthrow the government. And it was this sort of, you know, careful baby spoon way of feeding this anti-government ideology to a crowd that is just searching and desperate for answers. So I think that 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 was really why that that scene to me kind of came together is that you've got all these different ideas, but then, you know, you have a speaker saying like, hey, I'm like you. I'm just a mom. I am also religious. I also am confused. Here are answers. And they come in the form of people who've killed police officers. That's crazy to me. Well, and also like maybe it's like your 
in more danger than you think you are as white people, conservative white people or whatever, and look at what the state has done to people like us, mm-hmm. this is a bigger problem than you think it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, what? another um, part of the story that didn't make it was that at a certain point, you know, obviously we're on, I think, day 89-ish of protests here in Portland. Yeah. And Kelly and uh, uh, pro- another prominent member of the Patriot Movement showed up downtown and they were outside the courthouse and they were like, yes, this is what we've been talking about. This is what <laughs> we've been saying. And, and they go up and they get in the face of a female police officer and they're to ask, you know, quizzing her on the constitution and, and really harassing people. And they're, they're kind of trying to um, merge in and say, yes, black lives matter. We also agree with you. And, and yeah. the focus is on, on the police. And so, and then, and that's something that I think you see in the boogaloo is that, people just want to see what's going on in Black Lives Matter as this very like anti-racist protesters against cops. And I think it's a lot yeah. more it's a lot more nuanced. It's a lot more subtle than that. Right. But but the you know, extremists are always gonna look for a window and they see a window right now to say, hey, okay, maybe we can um, you know, pull some Gordon Call stuff. You mentioned this the week with the the Boogaloo flag at one point, you really contextualized it in your story. It was like the Boogaloo flag is basically kind of like the Blue Lives Matter flag. It's like a variant of the American flag, but like one of the stripes is like, it's like a Hawaiian, it's like a, what is it? Like a hyacinth or something? It's like uh, a, it's like a, a, you know, like the nineties Hawaiian board short. Exactly. Print, right? Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's literally a board short print. It's like the, I, you, you probably, if you're a dude of a certain age, had this print on your billabong shorts at some point, <laughs> <laughs> but like each line of the, this variant of the American flag was like Brianna Taylor. Uh, George Floyd, but also Lavoie Finicum and I th- and uh, Vicky Duncan and Lemp- Weaver from yes. Ruby Ridge and from Ruby Ridge, yeah. Idaho, yeah. and and uh, Duncan Lemp, who's like become another like almost like a Breonna Taylor figure, where it's like he was just killed in his home for doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, that flag to me, you know, I'd seen that too, but I it it, it sort of struck me as like, oh, like this is like this is not just this is just not a meme here. Like this is a, um, this flag captures like a sentiment in the last, you know, 30 or so years of American history. Um, And like, uh, but, but it also shows like this inability to like see the differences between what happened to Finicum and what happened to Eric Garner or Breonna Taylor. Like it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of white people equating those things. And, you know, at the end of the day, yes, like there are serious, serious questions about what happened with Duncan Lemp, like very serious questions. Um, and and I, that have, that have yet to be answered. And so I think that what that, that flag it captures is that the government has not answered sufficiently to people why these, all these people are dead. Um, now, I mean, you can think what you want about Finicum and, 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 you know, sort of the, you know, other telling of his death that has been taken on by the Patriot movement and sort of propagandized. But, um, but I, but I think it is notable that that they're all trying to say, these are all Americans who are dead and maybe shouldn't be. One of the things that I found really striking about Kelly Stewart, who we, we just talked about briefly was that she was at that rally and she was sort of like stumping. I'm guessing there was, there's some sort of grift along here in some way, but she was creating basically a phone tree trying to get all these diverse people to sort of sign up for the same phone tree mm-hmm. 
to sort of like come out and support. And it seems like this is something that happened with like all the diverse, the somewhat diverse groups that all sort of gravitated toward the Bundys of all these different tendencies. But she said, quote, if there's an emergency, if a contact tracer shows up at your, your, your door, so if somebody's trying to test you for coronavirus, if CPS shows up at your door, somebody might, who might be trying to take away your kids, if the health department comes to your work and threatens to shut you down, so somebody who might be trying to stop you as a business owner from doing your God-given commercial right as an American, we can send out a text that says, get to the a- address right now. So it's like they're trying to basically create this coalition of people that like regardless of which part of this you care about, we can all support each other. Yeah. And the this um, this thing that she was parading out that day, it's called the People's Rights Movement. And the earliest um, origin that, of it that I can see is Ammon Bundy, who is somebody I've written a lot about um, yeah. in Idaho in very early on in, in COVID. You know, he was gathering people together against stay at home orders. He was, you know, saying we need to get rid of the governor of Idaho. He's tyrannical, et cetera, et cetera. And he came up with this thing called, you know, the people's rights movement and had sort of said, you know, if you text the word rights to this number, we can put you in this phone tree and respond. um, Basically take law enforcement out of the equation, take, you know, the law out of the equation. We can decide as people what is and isn't uh, an infringement of people's rights. So you saw pretty early on, there was um, this woman in Idaho who kind of staged this play date at a playground and the police arrested her. And um, here comes Bundy and his people's rights movement showing up at the house of the officer who arrested her, showing up at the governor's house, sort of making these big demands about what was and and wasn't okay. Um, And, you know, I always want to be clear, like that the the Bundy's movement is not big. It's not. Um, it, it it can it can seem that way, but it it's a lot of blustering. And when push comes to shove, you know, he'll say we're going to bring a thousand people out to a protest. You know, in you know some little town in Idaho, and like twenty people show up. So yeah. But on those two instances at the cops' house and the governor's house, there were a lot of people who showed up, and I think that that's when. Um, Bundy saw the window opening too. Hey, there are a lot of people with a lot of questions right now. And that, and this is what extremists do is that they act as a wedge. They see when there's a gap uh, and they yep. kind of fill in and say, don't go to the government, come to us. So yeah. you saw that happening. Um, it, now, now the people's rights movement, you know, obviously Kelly is, is pushing it in Washington. We've got it in Oregon. There's a, a group in Montana you know, I don't know how far it goes, but, um, and I don't know how many people are a part of it, but, you know, they've tried to zone out this different states into like these little areas, you know, zone one, zone two, and, and there's, you know, trying to have kind of a hierarchy. And this was something that we saw during the 2016 standoff at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge was sort of trying to create these citizens coalitions that would sort of decide on what they thought should happen to in a situation or to people um, before the government ever got involved. It's just, it's that same thing. It's just acting like a wedge, seeing where there's a gap and then saying, we're going to come in and impose our will. It's actually, it's weird, but like that was actually one of the parts of like Marxist ideology that the Soviets were so good at doing uh, when they did their revolution. It was like basically taking local control and setting up like what they call dual power to be like, don't go to the state, come to us, let's do our work. And then we can sort of gradually take this thing over together. I mean, that's what 
it's what ISIS does. Like it's what, yeah. it's what you know, <laughs> groups like that do in the Middle East. Like, uh, I mean, it's, you know, and a lot of people want to make that comparison a lot. They want to say like the Bundys are like ISIS and it's just, there's, it's just not really compare. It's not, it's not apples to apples to me. Right. Um, obviously. But, I, but I think that there is some grain of truth there. You know, these, these groups, they, they just look, they look for a way that they can insert themselves and, and exert power. And, and yeah, it's, it's well, and, and take successful tactics and then try to bend them to their own, you know, ideology or whatever, Mm -hmm. or whatever their program they're working on. Yeah. And I think it takes, you know, a really informed populace to say, wait a second, why are we, why are we coming to you? You know, uh, Ammon Bundy, (laughs) guy who wears a cowboy hat and owns an apple orchard in Idaho to tell us about, how we should run our, our states. Like, yeah, you know, right. it, it's, it's just, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's not right. So, okay. Last thing I want to talk about these rallies, I think, um, do you have a, and we've already talked about it a little bit with like Matt Shea. Mm-hmm. So do you have a sense of who was at the heart of those reopen rallies? Cause I got, you know, I got into an argument with a business owner in Spokane not really, I mean, it was like a Facebook back and forth where, I was like, you realize what's going on with these reopen rallies, right? And she was like, it's not my fault that a bunch of racists came to our rally to support us. And I was like, well, okay. But Matt Shea was one of the organizers of that rally. So do you have a, so it was like, maybe it was you who got suckered into coming to a racist rally. Mm. Do you have a sense of how much of these rallies were sort of co-opted by the, the far right and how much they were actually created to sort of drive economic fears as in form of entryism to like the darker shit? I mean, I think that there were like, I have a whole spreadsheet of rallies that I was watching all over the country where there was some participation. It could have been just attendance by far right groups, or it could have been like that they organized it. So I think that there was a range. Um, you know, I talked to a, a business owner in Oregon that sort of said some something to that same effect. You know, I don't know what Joey Gibson's politics are, and I think it's ridiculous that people say that my politics are his politics. I think that what what with a lot of those rallies, I mean, they were astroturfed by they were um, you know paid for by conservative groups like in Michigan, yeah. the DeVos family was actually right. fronting a lot of the money for a lot of what was going on there with the um, Operation Gridlock rallies. Um, yeah. You know, in Idaho, the Idaho Freedom Foundation. You know, you can find these sort of conservative pockets um, tied to a lot of the rallies. But, um, but I think that on the like normal person level, I think that people like this business owner I spoke to in Oregon, she was sort of willing to maybe turn a little bit of a blind eye to the politics of whoever was showing up because she just needed to reopen that, that, that I think that when people's pocket books are pinched, they may not care so much about about their politics. And really that was kind of one of the operating questions I was starting from when I started the story was like, you know, are people willing to say, nah, I don't really care if you're a white supremacist, if you're going to come patronize my business right now. Um, yeah. And I think that that was happening. So, but yeah, I, I, yeah, there were certainly lots of ties um, in all states to, to these conservative organizations. That's wild. Um, so what if we, uh, I was telling this might get cut. I was telling Leah that I got, I, I do a really good job of taking notes at the beginning or like really planning out my questions. And I sort of just like <laughs> fell apart at the end here, but what we we've only kind of glanced so far on the, on the, 
the turn that this took in the wake of George Floyd. So maybe, I mean, but we're also approaching an hour already. So, and I want to talk about journalism in a second as well, that I'll probably split into maybe two episodes. Do you want to be part of a double feature about journalism with Sean Vestal? Sure. Uh, I love Sean Vestal. Because we had, we had a really, we had a really good chat that I wasn't able to fit into my first episode with him. So I might just splice them together, but yeah. Um, so how, what, what sort of a turn did this take uh, when in the wake of the protests that happened after George Floyd and what what can we take from that? Um, we sort of already talked a little bit about how they sort of came up and tried to either in some people. And again, it's so weird that like some people seem to be legitimately like, yeah, you've got Brianna Taylor. We've got Duncan Lemp. Like we should be we should be mobbed up together in a way that seemed more or less authentic. Mm-hmm. And then there were obviously the people that were threatening to put a bullet in, you know, being like, we're here for the to protect the BLM protesters. And then the quiet part was we're going to put a bullet through their head if they throw a rock. Yeah, I mean, I think that that like with in the wake of everything that happened with George Floyd and the protests that were happening in every city in the and town in the country, you saw really kind of that division at the far right that that you saw um, that the priority of militia groups was to protect property and to you know stand in front of businesses and 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 say your life is worth taking if you shatter this repairable window of this business here in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho or yeah. whatever. Um, whereas you did see some Boogaloo boys also, you know, standing right there with militias or maybe they were already in a militia or trying to look like they were in a militia, but they were just wearing a Hawaiian shirt that day. But then you did <laughs> yeah. see, you know, Boogaloo boys standing with Black Lives Matter protesters and saying Black Lives Matter and asking protest leaders, how can we be supportive of you? So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there was, I think, you know, stepping back from all of this, I think it's this, it's this moment that we're living in, not just the last four years where groups with fringe ideas and anti-government ideas are, you know, supporting the president and the, the president has sort of opened the door for a lot of these white supremacist groups to be out and proud in public, but also the pandemic. I mean, I think that's why people came out in force in the way that they did in the wake of George Floyd's killing. And, um, and so you saw like this frustration that people had of, from being home and seeing, you know, a man get murdered by a police officer, this, everybody sort of take their side. And, um, yeah. and I think that that was, I mean, it was just really on display in the Northwest, like down in uh, Ashland and Grants Pass and Klamath Falls, like you just had all these people come out and saying, we care about businesses. And so yeah. it was, um, you know, we talk a lot in Oregon about the state's racist roots and, you know, the, of, of its founding and, and that kind of thing. But when you saw like, in mass, these people coming out and saying, could, not being able to say Black Lives Matter, but saying that this window matters, you know, or whatever. Oh my God. Like, I think that that was a real um, sobering moment to observe, for sure. Yeah. Maybe the last thing on this, a thing that you, you mentioned in the story that I, I just can't wrap my head around as relates to the way that law enforcement is sort of taking or not taking this thing seriously. It was like, what I was hearing locally was that, and I heard this sort of nationally too, people were saying that, and Ozzy said it himself and Craig Meidel said it himself, that like part of the way that like intelligence 
sort of trickles down from like the the, F, the federal agencies that are sort of tracking, tracking maybe extremism, whatever they're tracking, a way of disseminating intelligence down to be like, hey, you know, random sheriff in random county in America, be on the lookout for X. The reason they were focused on Antifa was that they were getting these reports from federal, from their federal intelligence contacts that it was Antifa, it was Antifa, mm. whatever. Whereas, as you noted in the story, for since early in 2019, and even earlier than that, I found something I think from like 2012, but as late as, and then as late again as this February, so very close to this, Christopher Ray, the director of the FBI, had put racially motivated violent extremism at the highest threat level possible, and the lone actor terrorism stuff at the like as like the top concern of the FBI. You you wrote that he said. 2019 had been the deadliest year for domestic violent extremism since 1995, the year of the Oklahoma City bombing. So it's just wild to me that if that's at least publicly what the FBI is saying the main problem is, why do you think local law enforcement is like, no, 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 it's actually Antifa? It's a great question. I mean, I think that in Portland, you see the same thing happening. Like there, um, (laughs) just this past Saturday, there was a massive protest between um, you know, Proud Boys and known racists in in downtown Portland um, and anti-fascist protesters. And the, there were guns drawn. You know, these right-wing protesters were drawing guns, um, pointing them at people. They were spraying each other with bear spray. They're, you know, uh, it, it just like beating each other up, fists with, you know, batons, all these things. Police were nowhere to be seen. And this is the same department that is declared almost every night for the last 80 some odd days a riot when they're at night for these Black Lives Matter protests. So you see sort of this um, kind of aligning of of police departments with these far right groups. And, and, you know, it's funny because like I started writing about protests in Portland um, the day that Donald Trump was elected and covered, you know, dozens of them. And yeah. I would say to my editors on the East coast, like the police are, are, it, it seems like they're protecting this small group of far right protesters like Joey Gibson and his friends um, and, and unleashing fury on these anti-fascist protesters. And, and, and there was this sort of really resistance to that idea. But I think that that's what real, we're really seeing. Like that's what we saw in Portland last Saturday. And we're seeing now is just this lack of acknowledgement that that these um, either these far-right groups are dangerous or maybe an agreement with them or even at times a collaboration with them. So, you know, I'm not really sure what to make of that. I mean, you've got Homeland Security being run by two people who haven't been confirmed by the Senate and yeah. their jobs. Um, who are, you know, deploying federal officers into Portland to right. to unleash fury on them and 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 seriously injure people to the point of almost killing people um, yeah. to stand against anti-fascism. I mean, and that's the thing. Like, you look as like a journalist, like I can't say you know one group is good and one group is bad. Like I wrote about both groups, but <laughs> at its heart, Antifa is not an organized group, and it is anti-fascist it is anti-fascism and why that is radical is a true like there's some mental gymnastics you have to do to convince yourself that pro-fascism groups are good um so 
so I, I mean, there's a lot at play there and this is maybe even another conversation, but, um, but yeah, I, th- I think, I think it is interesting. And I think in particular, it's very interesting in Spokane where you've had Sheriff Knezovich being the person leading the charge against representative Shea and really being out about, you know, uh, his connections and, and groups with the far right. And then all of a sudden saying Antifa was the threat in town. It was very bizarre to me to see how that that went on. Well, and also saying that like there are, he's like, there are like four Proud Boys in Spokane. It's like, I don't, I am not enmeshed in that world. I can name five or six Proud Boys off the top of my head, Mm. you know, in Spokane, right? And that's a weird mental gymnastics of itself. Like he is, he hates Matt Shea very vocally and very publicly, but very, yeah, like you were saying, seems very, very comfortable with the mainstream quote unquote. God, I don't, it's so weird even saying that. I don't want to say that not mainstream, but like the more established militias. Mm. Uh, so just to be clear though, and then I want to transition to the second, the, the talking about journalism this is actually a really good segue. You were saying that when you were trying to pitch these stories to your editors back East about how the cops seem complicit or at least comfortable with these right-wing movements that you saw popping up at the, the protests that began when Trump was first elected or inaugurated, your editors were saying like, no, that's, that's crazy. That can't be true. Or they, they were they expressing disbelief about your own pitch? Yeah, they were really skeptical of it. And like, it would always seem to get softened in the, in the stories that I would write. Um, you know, but I mean, I can very clearly remember being at one protest. It was the first one where Portland got its new police chief at that time, a woman named Danielle Outlaw, who is now the chief of police in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. And it was this, you know, beautiful sunny day. There were thousands and thousands of anti-fascist protesters. And by that, I do not mean all black block. Like people don't understand that black block is just a group of people in black clothing that sort of acts as a buffer zone. So all the yeah. moms and dads with kids on their shoulders holding love and peace signs don't get hit by whatever might be fired at them by, you know, white supremacist protesters or the police themselves. So there's this, you know, this protest is going on, lots of screaming, lots of yelling, lots of chanting and singing and and whatnot, drums. And and then all of a sudden, you know, the police unleash more flashbangs in in the course of like a minute that I had seen maybe a whole protest happen. And people just turn and they start running because they're scared. And all of a sudden, the protest turns into a protest, it turns to chaos. The police sort of turn it to chaos. People are running. And then, you know, this is a sunny, beautiful summer afternoon in Portland. So there are people, you know, out with their kids going to restaurants and things like that. All of a sudden they have, you have all these people who are not a part of the protest being sucked up into this chaos and not knowing why all of a sudden there are these, you know, unbelievable sounds going off and, and, and tear gas. And I remember calling my editor to ducking into a doorway as tear gas, or I'm sorry, at that point, they weren't using tear gas. This was like pepper balls and mace, but it feels yeah. sort of the same. Um, and I'm in this doorway and I'm, and I'm calling her and I'm saying, this is what's going on. And there are like these, you know, it sounds like a war. And I just remember her saying something to the effect of what is with people out there? <laughs> and, and I just was like, what? Like in this moment, I'm not asking you to judge the what I'm telling you, I'm asking you to trust that I'm here on the ground with these people watching what's happening, standing on both sides of the crowd, observing and interviewing people. And, and, and and what I'm telling you is, is that there's nothing happening 
to this group of agitators that, uh, including Joey Gibson, that keeps coming into the crowd to see if he can get anybody to punch him. Nothing happens to him, but this, these thousands of people, you know, again, men and women with children on their shoulders are getting blasted by pepper spray. It was just this moment where I was like, they don't understand. And to me, this might not be worth me covering anymore because they're not paying me enough to be here if they're not going to listen to what I'm trying to tell them. That was quite the journey, wasn't it, folks? A journey into the old Heart of Darkness, Northwest Edition. Well, and also right at the end there, the East Coast Edition. I'm actually really, really excited for part two of this conversation along with part two of the Sean Vestal conversation because it gets into some of the dynamics of journalism that are really sort of fascinating, interesting, brand new, and largely, you know, problematic. Media consolidation has taken most large sort of news organizations and, you know, smashed them together for better or worse, most of those things are on the East Coast. And so you get the situation like uh, Leah was talking about where if you're a writer working in the West and you want to get your work placed in really, really high profile publications, one of the occupational hazards is pitching people whose idea of the West might be like St. Louis or something. I'll be deep in the cold, cold ground before I recognize Missouri. So look forward to that next week. For now, though, I just wanted to sort of touch briefly back on the whole The situation in Kenosha, the murders committed by Kyle Rittenhouse, murders that are already being treated as self-defense on some parts of the right, and Rittenhouse is being treated like a hero, which I think is fucking monstrous. And then earlier tonight, a little closer to home, there was a murder that happened in Portland. So my thoughts are with Leah and everybody down there. Seemingly in the aftermath of a pro-Trump rally where people were driving their trucks around town macing people, pepper spraying, otherwise peaceful protesters. And then people hear gunshots and someone has taken a bullet to the chest and has died in Portland tonight. The reports I'm seeing suggest it actually might be a member of the Patriot Prayer Group. Patriot Prayer is led by Joey Gibson, who we talked about earlier in the episode. It's fucking dark days, man. Uh, And I got to get out of this episode before somebody else gets murdered. But it's really, really important to pay attention to these things, especially because there's going to be a protest in solidarity with Kenosha in Spokane tomorrow. We've been hearing reports that it's going to get crashed by militia types in a rare move, kind of counter to what we were talking about earlier in the episode. The mayor and the police chief and the sheriff have asked people to leave their guns at home, which is a new step. They must be at least taking it somewhat seriously. But please, if you go tomorrow to support the people in Kenosha, be safe. All right, I'll see you next time, guys.